Kia ora all. I am Thomas, owner of Strom Sports Nutrition Down Under Branch, and I'm here today with Pete Hodkinson. Uh, he's our BJJ bro, going around, strangling people and doing crazy stuff to their joints, but I'm going to let you do the rest of your introduction, kind of a bit about yourself and what you're up to these days, Pete. Sure thing. So, um, where to begin? <laughs> well, I... Um... I suppose we connected through my, not just my interest in, in martial arts and sport and fitness, and uh, in particular grappling, jujitsu, which is obviously my background. Um, I felt like I, I was starting a competitive career relatively late in the game. Like I'm 33. Mm. Um, and so I was, just really interested, really curious to see what things I could explore that might give me any kind of small advantage um, with that context in mind and with it also in mind that I didn't want to go on TRT. So I kind of um, tracked down a couple of molecules that you guys happened to be, I think, the only people in the country were stocking. And, yeah. um, and, so I just made an order and then got this beautiful box with some stickers and on the inside of it was like, not just the product, but, um, but all of the, all of these kind of free samples and a little handwritten note that said, Hey Pete, like noticed you ordered this, like it's quite a particular thing. Um, if you're interested in this, then you'll probably actually also like this and you might want to pair it with this. And if you want some advice on this and that, then like, let me know. And also we threw in some lion's mane just for you to try out if you're curious about that in the nootropic front. So, um, that, that was kind of the intro of me being hooked into then the cave now, um, yeah. Strom down under. Um, the intro to, to me is, I guess I've done a lot of different varied stuff with my life and um, I don't think that there's been anything in my life that's really clicked for me like the sport of jiu-jitsu has. And, what about um, what about jiu-jitsu makes it click? That's probably one of those things because everyone sees people getting addicted to it and they get all mm. in. So what what about it do you think really clicks, at least for you? It's, it sounds kind of redundant to say, but I think it's everything. It's everything about it. Um, it's really holistic as a sport. Every aspect of your being is being challenged and is experiencing some form, if you stick with it, of forward movement. And I think that's so rare. And not only that, but the community, the kind of the connective aspect of jujitsu. I don't know any other sport where gyms all around the world will be as welcoming to you as a jujitsu gym when you train, you know, regardless of whether you're a white belt or a black belt, you show up in a different country and don't know anybody. And this happened to me in Germany. I kind of, um, reached out to a gym you just get welcomed in straight away like no questions asked there's something that's quite intimate about it like you're obviously in very close physical proximity to to other people very quickly and um i think that does some work to breaking down 
um, interpersonal barriers and allows you to be quite open, forces you to be quite open because it's everything is directly mm. confronted. There's no hiding on the mats, you know? You are who you are. Your skills yeah, are where and, they're at. And you get immediate feedback. There's no fudging it and, oh, I'll kind of, like, I'll try this. Well, there might be a little bit of that, but it depends on your relationship with your training yeah. partners and, um, you know, the quality of the gym, dare I say it. But, like, by and large, like, when you put skill against skill, there's there's no hiding. It's It's all just right there. You can't make excuses. It's just, it's honest. And I think there's a lot to be said for honesty in daily life in general um, that I think jujitsu can be a gateway to for people. So there's, you know, the physical fitness is an obvious one. There's a sense of connection that some people don't get anywhere else or get in very few other places and and need that. We crave that. Um, A sense of growth, a sense of um, positivity around us. Um, it's intellectually stimulating. The sport is so deep. It's not like, and I don't, I, I don't like to shit on other martial arts, but it's not like Taekwondo where you can get yeah. a black belt in like two years, you know? Um, mm-hmm. There are some people who train three times a day and manage to do it in like th- four years, I think is the fastest um, today. Mm-hmm. The average person, you're talking like 10 to 12 years if you're training like three times a week throughout that period yeah. i mean there's things that you can do to optimize your training and learn faster different learning modalities and things like that that you can do to make your training more realistic and more productive but but by and large again there's no lying you you it's gonna take time um and on that note it, yeah. like it forces patience it, the people that stick with it really do develop a sense of long-term um focus uh you, it's kind of like following a, a long to a, a long form narrative in a book. It's it's like your journey through jujitsu. It's like you've got to accept that you're playing a long game. There are some short games along the way, but but by and large, it's a long game. I think all of those things together and more um, are the things that really lit me up about jujitsu and, and that jujitsu gave to me at a time where I really needed that um, because yeah. you know I got into jujitsu, Japanese jujitsu, traditional jujitsu, and there's some differences between traditional jiu-jitsu sport jiu-jitsu and brazilian jiu-jitsu which i focus on now um but you know when i first started training i trained for a couple of years uh, up in auckland and a couple of different clubs loved it loved the people there but um i kind of lost the commitment after after a period of time and then went off and did parkour and free running and crossfit and yoga and, and all of these other things and then 2013 went back into Brazilian jiu-jitsu and then um another couple of years of training I I kind of fell off and was doing stand-up comedy and was doing more yoga more crossfit more of this just very fragmented I think I was quite fragmented as a person generally if I'm being honest um but then I I went to Germany like I left the country to try and find something new to start again and um when I hit the ground over there I I didn't really have my own circle of friends. I was connecting through um, close personal contacts, but it always felt like their groups, not mine. And I needed to find my own foothold if I was going to live there longer term. So um, I emailed a jujitsu gym there, the head coach. I remember saying like, oh, I've put on a bit of weight from traveling and drinking a few too many beersies in Germany. Um, but I'm also looking for my own friend circle and, and, and my coach uh, Milton 
emailed me back saying, oh man, if, if you've done jujitsu before, then you know the weight will come off. Um, but if you're looking for a family, then you've come to exactly the right place. And those guys really lived up to that uh, throughout my whole time living overseas. And even now that I'm back in the country, those guys are still family to me, whatever happens. So it, it, there's something about that period of my life where I just really needed that. And that made it stick for me. And now there's like no turning back. And then over time, the kind of competitive coaching aspirations and things developed. But first and foremost, for, for me, it was like, I didn't like the person that I was becoming. And jujitsu helped steer the course while I was trying to figure out what sort of person I did want to become. And it turns out I wanted to become a jujitsu guy. <laughs> yeah. Do you think, um, I'm just thinking back to where you said like you were really into it and you're a little bit fragmented and then you started hopping around hmm. a bit. What do you think that really big difference is between back then where you, you did have a taste for it and you got into it and then in Germany where you, you kind of realize I actually, this is where I feel my center. Mm. It's a really good question. And I've puzzled on it quite a bit because the honest answer is I'm not a hundred percent sure. Um, I always had beautiful clubs that I was training at with wonderful people. Um, and I think, you know, jujitsu can be good for everyone, but the person has to be ready to also be good to yeah. jujitsu. You know, like it's, it's, it's like, it is a relationship. Um, just like between husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, it's, um, it's, it's something quite, quite, that goes quite deep um and you've got to commit you know yeah if you half-ass a relationship it's it's not going to develop into something beautiful if you like plant some seeds in a garden and then never water them then at best you're going to get a seedling that dies you know like and it's the same thing with your training like you have to be willing to constantly water the seeds of your jujitsu jiu-jitsu insert your hobby here really like it's true for anything i think it was a perfect timing between i was ready to commit to being a better person and that involved exercising my commitment in general um and jiu-jitsu was something that i was already kind of familiar with and became a vehicle for like or an expression of that and that just became this nexus of, of positive change and growth for me. Something that happened around that time period that um, I'll never forget is uh, maybe like seven years before this, a friend of mine, I had just come out of the end of a relationship and a friend of mine had asked me a question and the question, and he goes, Pete, I, I don't need an answer for this. Like, I just want you to think about it. I was like, okay. And he's like, knowing everything that you know about yourself, would you date you? Would you enter into a romantic relationship with Pete Hodkinson? And I started to, oh, you know, and he's like, no, 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 no. Like, I, I don't, I don't, I don't want an answer. Like, that's for you. But I want you to think about that. You know, and I was like, Whew. okay. And then I forgot about it and like went on just doing my own thing <laughs> and being just as wild as before, to be honest, you know? Um, yeah. It's another one of those things like a great question is only a great question if you're actually willing to engage with the answer and i wasn't ready and then 
years later, I brought back a couple of friends from Germany to New Zealand. And we happened to be hanging out with that same guy, that same group. And I overheard him asking the question to this other guy who was having some relationship issues at the time. And he was like, Sebastian, would you, knowing everything that you know about yourself, would you enter uh, enter, enter into a relationship with you? And it threw my mind back to being asked the question. And I realized I'd never really answered it for myself or for anybody else. And so at that point I was ready and the answer was no. And, and that's, that's a, tr- that's hard. That's hard to realize. Like, cause it yeah. means you don't love yourself. Right. Yeah. It's, and so uh, you, you don't have a, it's, it's almost a demonstration that you just, you don't have a perspective on your own life that is overall positive that's that's probably like it's a uh, much like the holistic with jujitsu where you get a holistic view the simple case of like would you be in a relationship well relationship involves everything so right it is a like uh, that's a good question i really enjoy that question right i I really i still love the question and you know I'm, i'm kind of i'm waiting for the moment where it becomes appropriate for me to ask somebody the question, you know, it's, that's, that's a little Taonga. That's a little gift that he gave me that I now get, and you and the listeners get to <laughs> get to give to their, you know, friends, relatives, like people who might need to ask those questions um, with no expectation and no pressure as well. That's the big thing is it took me seven years to come back and be able to answer the question. And it was a no. And then, but then an interesting thing happens when you're honest with that. And it's like, Okay, no, why? Like, what are the things about myself that make me hesitate to get close to myself, right? Um, And almost all of it came down to honesty and at its various levels. Like, do you have integrity? Do Do you live in line with your word? Do you say something and then do it? What do you say things and then just, oh, just I'll do this. And then, you know, and I realized I was doing a lot of that. I was like, I was going to be this and I was going to do this and I was going to do that. And I was going to go off. And, blah, blah, blah. and what happened was I started going, okay, well, I'll just stop saying things that I don't really believe I'm going to do. And, and that kind of narrows focus. And, um, I was involved in jujitsu at the time that all of this was happening. And so, you know, the parallels between that and, and being good as a training partner and establishing good training patterns for yourself. Like there's, I think there's so much in there. And I think I just owe a lot to that time Mm. that just triggered those, those realizations. And, you know, jujitsu, it's, 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 it's not a cult. Like you know, I'm not going to stand here and sit here and say like, it has all the answers, like whatever your life's problems are, go to jujitsu. But, but I will say there's a high chance it could help, you know? So that's, I think what made it stick for me is I was ready to commit to something completely for myself and also for the thing, because mm. there's like a, an interesting thing that happens there. And it's like, when you give yourself to something completely, you you can't really a hundred percent be sure what that's going to become, what that's going to grow into. And that's, that's really exciting because I'm still 
seeing that every day. It's, I think it's really cool. Do you think the pull-in that kind of allows jiu-jitsu to be such a kind of uh, maybe an, an example of discipline and being able to get in is... I, I, I think about this a lot. There's two factors to a craft that is quite appealing to people is being able to do it consistently, but kind of with not too much bar. So uh, I think this is why bodybuilding is getting so popular now. And I think mm. jujitsu applies in the same way where you can essentially, all you've got to do is show up and just get started. You don't, you don't mm. need to be too fancy or anything. Like you just got to maybe get on the mat and start rolling with someone. And then it yeah. starts to take itself over. And so that's like where I think like that low bar of entry so that you don't need massive amounts of discipline on every mm. single day. But then in order to really like create a discipline, it needs to be consistent sort of thing. And so with jujitsu, one of the, I think everyone can appreciate it's the level of complexity it can get to is immense. And so someone can see, they can look at like a 10 year goal and they've kind of got that path laid out. Like maybe they don't see the exact path, but they might be like, I see a signpost over there. I want to get (laughs) to that area roughly. Um, I just want to solve that problem. Like that little bit of the puzzle. If I can like put those pieces together, that'd that'd be a good start. (laughs) And yeah, and I think that's why I, it's, I see it talking to the bodybuilding crowd a lot. Is like I just like, I just want to develop out my lats just a little bit more. And mm. what they've got to do is just that little bit of consistent iterative effort and stick at it. And I think that stick mm. at it's where the discipline comes in. But um, yeah, the ease of getting in each day. That's I I think that's where it's where i'm assuming so much of that value and pull in is with jujitsu mm. especially when there's a lot of other there's a lot of other hobbies or um sports where it is kind of complex like if you want to get good at rugby you've got to play rugby a lot but to play rugby a lot you, you need a te- like two teams of 20 guys <laughs> yeah. each sort of thing so now you've got to coordinate all these people and there's all this other stuff like jujitsu like you just need one other yeah. dude um, yeah and that's so that's why i really enjoy the sumo with dwight far less complex um right because yeah because you're getting involved in the waikato sumo yeah, community sumo sort of yeah how big and is the community how many people is it is it like uh are you and one other dude or had, is it like a small group of you guys if it's raining or conditions are unfavorable it's pretty much always just me and dwight um <laughs> but there have been times where we have like a, a good handful of guys um, cool. and there's a bit of a community up in Auckland and they operate out of a, um, uh, not jujitsu gym. It's out of a judo, judo gym. club. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And because there's actually a lot of overlap with sumo and judo, mm. but uh, there's a bunch of guys there too. So if, if like Dwight sometimes goes up with them and stuff like that. So it's growing is what we'll say, but that's cool. there's definitely plenty of sessions where it's just Dwight and I in his backyard in the mud wearing nappies. <laughs> <laughs> I've had my fair share of jujitsu 101. So I know, yeah. The, yeah, yeah, I know yeah. the deal. Sometimes it's yeah. just you and one other person that got out of bed that morning. I remember 
like, oh, it must have been like a year and a half, almost two years ago now, um, I, I kind of started off um, morning classes at Combat Room BJJ, where I'm doing most of my training now, um, and where I've actually had most of my training throughout my jiu-jitsu career. Um, but I wanted to teach, and I wanted to teach to partly because I wanted to learn things and I learn well by teaching and I like being asked questions that lead you down certain paths and that sort of thing. But I remember um, approaching Vanderson, uh, Vanderson Peters, the coach there, and uh, asking if it would be okay if I looked at doing uh, morning classes. And he initially thought I meant lunchtime classes and he's like, oh no, we've got stuff happening. And I was like, no, 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 no. I mean like, like 6.30 a.m. Like, and he's like, oh man, <laughs> we've tried that before, but you know, like it, it's... It hasn't, hasn't worked in the past, um, but you're welcome to give it a go, kind of thing. And it, it, it's for that reason, you know. Um, but I just decided as another exercise of that commitment, right? I just thought, well, you know, I'm just going to show up one day a week. Like, we'll start on a Wednesday, and it's like kind of the middle of the road. And then we'll just see if we can get some people along. And for me, I was just like, you know, if there's one person that shows up, if there's that one guy or girl that comes along then that's worth it for me because I get to do the thing that I wanted to do, right? Um, if more people come, then that's great. But going in with that expectation of, I, look, one person is okay. Even if nobody's there, I can lift weights, I guess. But like one person is, that's enough to get started. Whereas I think maybe in the past people got demotivated by just like one person showing up and, you know, that you'd get tired and they wouldn't come along one day and they're like, oh, let's push it to this other day. I was like, no, no, consistency. Even if I'm fucking exhausted, I will make it there at 6.30 a.m. and we'll make it happen unless, you know, something has me going out of town or whatever. And um, sure enough, man, like over time, if you're just consistent and you show up, eventually people see what's going on and they want to be a part of it because they've got availability in their calendar. They want to train more. That's the only space that's available. They want to train with you more specifically. Um, they want to train with the people who are showing up to those. It, it like builds on itself. And now I'm not even going to those morning classes. Obviously I spent six months down in Queenstown. Um, but since I've been back, I haven't been going to those morning classes, but it's just taken on its own life. And there's people there that are just they're doing the thing, you know? And, um, yeah, I mean, sometimes all it takes is just you and one other person who just show up consistently and put the opportunity out to people to come along and be a part of that thing. And it doesn't really matter what it grows into if you're happy just doing that, you know? Yeah, I think that's that. Uh, it's being content with doing the action at the time. And it's like, if you're doing cool stuff, then it's very easy to be content with the action at the time, too. Right. Like, again, I have no complaints about being out in the mud with Dwight in the cold and rain. <laughs> Just me and him. It's great fun. Um, and frankly, the neighbors probably think we're nuts, but uh, even better. they can think what they like. <laughs> yeah, even, I, yeah frankly, I, I, I don't care. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. I would rather have neighbors that think I'm a little bit crazy for some reason. Like, what is that guy doing every Tuesday at 2 p.m.? <laughs> <laughs> You just see how I, like, I really hope that your neighbors don't someone. even know what sumo is. Like, I mean, they probably do, but like, how I, good would it be if they had never seen I, sumo wrestling and they're just like, "This is just two dudes out on a lawn and nappies cuddling." I don't. And these kids these days. 
There's kids in there, hippity hop in there. <laughs> Um, I want to pull back to an earlier, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Japanese jiu-jitsu and mm. Brazilian, so you did a little bit of Japanese slash traditional. Uh, could you just highlight a little bit what the differences on those two would be? Because I'm, I'm sure, sure heaps of people aren't familiar with it. They're just like, everyone does BJJ. Yeah. Why, yeah. why is that taken over? Well, I mean, I, I should preface what i'm about to say by saying like it's all jujitsu like you could say it's all grappling they're all martial arts they're all different expressions of human movement that's like that's it um like aikido judo jujitsu bjj um they all have similar roots and you know we think of japanese jiu-jitsu as being like oh that was the og like that that was first or like judo came first and then it birthed out these other things but um you know there's evidence of like, greeks they wrestled um ancient asian like indian cultures there's like indian forms of grappling where you know i've seen pictures of people doing heel hooks and and shit it's like there's nothing really that new under the sun. Like we've been doing this as humans, like see cats fighting or like monkeys fighting. They're doing jujitsu, you know, like it's, <laughs> they've got different um, anatomy, physiolo physiology, different biomechanics, but, but they're doing jujitsu. Um, so, I mean, that that's kind of the overarching thing. Like I would hate to say what I'm about to say and then have people go, ah, but you yeah. know, like, you know, that's, that's the background. I'm aware of that. Um, the differences specifically between what what I call Japanese jiu-jitsu or traditional jiu-jitsu, like people that do that just call it jiu-jitsu. Like they're not, they're not going, I do Japanese jiu-jitsu. They, they just go, I do jiu-jitsu, um, which I've said that sentence enough to get it out clean, but I do jiu-jitsu that, that can, it's a bit of tongue jiu-jitsu getting around that one. <laughs> but the differences in what I experience, because it obviously depends a lot also on what gym you go to, because they'll be practicing different things, but more stand-up, so more striking, um, punching, mm -hmm. kicking, knees. Um, depending on the club, more throwing, like more of a judo influence. Excuse me. More throwing... Um, more of a judo influence, more self-defense focus. And again, this, that, that there's a caveat that's highly dependent on the club that you go to. There's a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu gyms which focus mostly on sport jiu-jitsu. And then there's places that do have a heavy grounding in self-defense because that was what it kind of was birthed from, was the idea of you know, a small guy being able to defend themselves against a, a larger opponent. Although there's some yarns about how that was expressed at the time that you know, we'll, we'll put that to one side anyway so more yep. stand up more striking punching kicking throwing um, more self-defense focus the club that i did uh, that i trained at um did a lot of defense against attackers with weapons so you know bats sticks um knives and guns but again like the caveat to that was our coach was always just like don't be fucking stupid man like we can show you some things that 
kind of work mechanically around these things. But what we really want to show you is like that it doesn't work. Right? They're like if somebody has a gun, like the best defense is not being there. Um yes. I remember we, we did this thing called multiples where you you're you're in the middle of a circle and the coach like calls out like two or three people and they all attack you at once. And you've got to like just fight your way out of that. And, like, using one person as a shield to, like, move yourself out through the space, like, things like that. But I remember one particular afternoon, um, the they got handed, like, a fake knife. And the guy, like, steps into the circle holding this knife. And I'm standing there. I just ran out the gym door. And everybody's laughing. Like, everybody's cracking up. And as I walked back in, I just saw the instructor, like, kind of nodding. Like, yeah. Yeah, we, we laugh, but yes, like that's an effective defense against that. But we looked at stuff yeah. like that. So we would practice defense against weapons, armed assailants, multiple attackers, bottles, you know, that sort of thing. Um, the club that I was at also drew heavily from other arts. So we had like a Kali stick fighter, we had like a Filipino knife fighter, we had a, um, a, a guy who's really good at Krav Maga, um, and uh yeah boxes kickboxes we brought in um bjj guys sometimes to, like just mess us up on the ground um and just tried to take things from all of those influences that you know those guest coaches would offer and we go ah okay like that in particular is something that we can take and, and go away with so it was a really healthy approach to that kind of self-defense stuff so that's generally it like when you go into a brazilian jiu-jitsu gym Nine times out of ten, um, there'll be some some wrestling, maybe some judo to get the fight to the ground. But then a lot of the chess of BJJ occurs once the fight is grounded. There's a lot more to it than that in the stand-up, obviously. But most clubs will spend most of the time in the ground fighting and grappling. Relatively little time on self-defense, from my experience. Like Some clubs will run like a self-defense class. But in my experience, they haven't been particularly well attended. Um, Combat Room did a cool thing about a year ago where they just made the whole curriculum for the course of a month um, striking allowed. They were just like, okay, we're going to teach you guys how to hit things. And all of our rounds start standing up and you can strike. Like, obviously wearing gloves, pads. Um, But yeah, just add that dynamic to it. It's hilarious because, like, I had obviously done some background in that like um free fighting which involved striking and kicking and that sort of thing although most of it was point based so not full contact um but i have a bit of a background in knowing how to add that toolkit into the game but you know you see somebody who's done jujitsu for even like a number of years you throw some punches into it and all of a sudden they're like oh (laughs) none of my stuff works because the guy can hit me you know um Playing from guard, for instance, which is, you know, you're on your back and you're using your legs and arm to establish frames and hooks onto your opponent to control their movement. Like, playing from your back makes sense when you can't get punched in the fucking head. Mm. But if you can get hit, like, all of a sudden it's like a lot of the things that you might be trying to do don't work. It's often all about, like, closing the distance and, and taking that kind of talking anyway i think i'm getting a little bit sidetracked but yeah differences between jujitsu and bjj yeah 
so would you say BJ? Would you say BJJ is more influenced, um, more influenced by the sports side? Is that because? So if it is more ground game, um, I hate this coming in from a layman experience point. Mm. To me, yeah, it's much. There's there's not much self defense aspect unless you're literally one on one in a ground game. Um, because if there's two guys, you get one guy on the ground, and why well, you'd have to get both on the ground, otherwise one dude's kicking you in the head. That's my just well, my jump yeah, story, so. That's it. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, I don't yeah. need to overcomplicate yeah. your so it's much, summary yeah. there like that. That's yeah, accurate, so you know. Like it's. Um, yeah. The, I think again, there's some Brazilian jiu-jitsu clubs that focus more or less on the self-defense aspect. Most places will try to find a balance, and in reality, I actually do genuinely believe that a good grounding in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, even if you never specifically spar self-defense focus you will be well equipped to deal with an untrained attacker one-to-one um yeah things are more complicated where you've got multiple attackers and you can get kicked in the head and people that really know how to control distance and striking that's a different story but defending against an untrained attacker like most people will you'll they'll be like butter in your hands Mm. yeah so because you understand your body i assume like that's the that's one of the big things that, to me, it, it sounds like that you're learning just how your body works and all sorts of dimensions. Um, yes. Yeah. No, and the reality is, cool. most uh, attackers, most, most people that attack you, they're not showing up to fucking training six nights a week. You know, you're not getting attacked by the SAS, right? And if you are, then you've got bigger problems, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. You know, I just want to be careful because I'm saying like, oh yeah, so a lot of gyms don't focus so much on self-defense and it's not there. It's like, well, it is. And there's also Japanese jiu-jitsu or traditional jiu-jitsu gyms that I've been to where some of the self-defense stuff that they're training is utterly ineffective. You know, it all comes down to how you practice the mechanics of the things that you're learning. And if, if you don't make it real in some way, then you miss out. And that's, I think, something that jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu does really well. It's like the sparring. It's like, it's like I said right at the start, there's no lying. It's all like right there on the canvas. Whereas like when you're practicing self-defense, so often it's like, well, how do you practice that? You've got a guy who goes, I'm going to punch you like this. And then you've got time to, oh, parry the strike, and then throw them over. And it's like, fuck off, man. Like, you want to tell me that you're going to get attacked in the street, and then you're going to go, okay, I'm just going to wait for that slow jab, and then I'm going to fuck him up. (laughs) Fuck off, no. You've got to be able to roll with those punches. And so I think the most effective way to train self-defense is exactly what Vanderson brought into Combat Room, which is just make all of the training self-defense-based. And throw people into the deep end. Just go, yeah, you guys can punch. Look after each other, but make it real. Give each other real reactions. And then see how your jujitsu stands up. And sure enough, like after a few rounds, you do figure it out. The first rounds are hilarious, but you figure out like, oh, okay, like I need to be tracking elbows. I need to track shoulders. I need to make sure that the thing that he's going to hit me with is taken care of as point one, or that I'm so close that he can't hit me with any force. And it like you learn these key details to making your jujitsu transition more effectively to that space. But if you never practice that, 
then sorry, but you, you, you don't really yeah. know how to defend yourself. Probably transferring on now because you're doing a bunch of coaching uh, and, yeah. you, and you have been coaching for a while. Now we should probably specify. So <laughs> what, what about your coaching style that you're, you know, because you're touring around doing individual gyms. What is kind of that special source that you're trying to bring when you go to a new gym? Because I, I assume you're trying to present a unique value that they're not just getting yeah. in their normal sessions. Yeah, and that's that's hard because like the New Zealand jiu-jitsu community is actually really vibrant and really strong. It's um, I think I have to give credence to that because I'm stepping into their spaces, and I've been really impressed at the, like, the quality of the roles, the quality of the human beings in those spaces. And I'm just super grateful to be able to join them on the mats. That's, that's number one. Um, what I'm trying to do personally is um, correct is a strong word, but correct something that I see about seminars in general that I don't think is as effective as it could be generally. Um and that is that so often people teach seminars as though they were an instructional. They come out and they go, okay, we're going to do this move. And then you drill it and you go, okay, if they do this, then you do this. And you go, okay, yep, do that. And then they give you this reaction and then you do this other thing. Like, okay. Now, if they do this, you do this. And if they do this, then you do this. And off this other pathway, you like you can do this if they try and do this. And then you like stack techniques on top of each other. And in terms of taxonomy, like that makes sense. Like logically, that's like, okay, here's the if X then Y pathways of what happens. But so often, you know, you're dealing with varying levels of experience as well. So getting people to react in a way that makes sense to then lead into the techniques that are being taught. It's like, that's a whole other ball game. So I think some people get left behind in that the speed at which material gets covered. Um, and I think you've got to take people on a journey. Um, you have to put people in a position and actually just tell them to play and and say look here's your objective like just try and do this try and get on top from here try and execute this submission whatever the thing is it, it doesn't so much matter um and then ask them what went wrong like what while you were trying to do that thing what was the other guy doing and hopefully you understand the position well enough that the things that they come back with are the next steps that you wanted to teach in your taxonomy anyway. But quite often, you actually need to take people through that because I really don't like teaching somebody a solution for a problem that they haven't discovered yet because it's, it's dead air, right? If I don't know why I'm going to implement this thing that you're handing me, then why are you handing it to me? There's some, like, I think there's also value in instructionals, learning from instructionals, studying a big, like, uh, a kind of network diagram of a position and how that stuff is. I learn really well doing that. But in a seminar, it's like you're there with the person who's watching you and you, you get like that one-on-one -on -one feedback. I think it should be more about, like, 
try and do the thing, you tell me what goes wrong, and then we'll problem solve together to move through those steps. And teaching with that approach, nine times out of ten, I've actually covered all of the material that I wanted to cover anyway, plus minus a couple of things. But they end up being the things that are most useful. And I sometimes come away going, oh, I wanted to teach X and Y, but nobody asks questions about those situations. So if I had focused on those two things for 20 minutes, well, I've just given them 20 minutes of dead learning because that's not the problem that they experienced when they were actually trying to execute the technique. Does that make sense? So I guess, I mean, what I'm talking about isn't new. Like, we're calling it ecological learning. The first time I encountered this learning philosophy was through a book called Teaching Games for Understanding. Um, and I didn't actually read the book, but I studied sport and fitness education and coaching, and we had a unit where we looked at this idea of teaching games for understanding. And that just made so much sense to me when I was, like, 17. I had just started jujitsu, But we had this unit on coaching, and so they we had to keep a coaching logbook. We had to go and shadow a coach. And so I went to my jujitsu instructor. I'd been there for like a few weeks. And I was like, hey man, um, we've got this thing at course. I need to like take notes on somebody's coaching and lesson planning and stuff. Do you mind if I do that with you? And he's like, yeah, come along to the kids' classes. And, and he just had me coaching straight away. He's like, bro, don't worry about it. They're kids. Like, they're stupid ass. <laughs> All you have to do is be like one step ahead of where they are. And that's that's real easy. <laughs> I don't mean to offend kids that do jujitsu. Um, because, man, there's some lightning kids out there. Don't get me wrong. I watch oh, some, yeah. like, um, Northern Champs. And, like, every competition I go to, the kids are sometimes the most exciting ones to watch. They're, fucking crazy and they're fearless um but yeah he said to me look man don't worry like you just need to be one step ahead of where they're at in the lesson initially i'm there to like help guide that process forward you'll be sweet don't stress and i was like felt really out of depth but it meant that i started learning to teach jujitsu at the same time as i started learning jujitsu and that i think is something that sets me apart from a lot of people training the art because the majority of people, I think, I think, go in because they want to learn. Um, whereas from the very beginning, I was really attracted to the idea of teaching. Um, and, and that still lights my fire today. Way more than competition. Like, I love competing. Winning is cool. But what are the things that are really lasting? For me, it's like those little moments where you show somebody something... They ask a question, you go, ah, have you thought about like this thing over here? And they go, oh my God, yes, ah, that's, that's, and it clicks, you know, like that moment, that's what keeps me showing up to training more than anything else. So anyway, I think that's what I'm trying to bring into seminars is like, and it, it's, it sometimes will mean that I cover less content, but I genuinely believe in my experience so far, particularly in the South Island tour that I did was that more people are coming away actually being able to do the thing that you're teaching. Whereas so often it's this instructional focus where I'm just throwing stuff at you, drill, 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 and then we have a roll at the end. You never really have a chance to put it into practice. And then I walk out the door, 10 minutes later, you're, you're, you're brimming with questions that you wanted to be able to ask, mm. or you would have wanted to ask throughout the session. And then a week later, you've forgotten everything that I talked about. And maybe there's like a purple belt and a brown belt and the coach who's like picked up enough details to be able to 
you know, drill and pass on and stuff. But I think you can get a much better foundation by following a slightly different approach. So that's kind of what I want to do. And, you know, I've, I've been to a lot of gyms and a lot of places that I've guest coached at have said to me that I have a unique approach to coaching. I know that's not true because I've trained with enough people to know that there are other people doing what I'm trying to do. And there are people doing it better than me, you know, but um, it's really encouraging to me that I might be able to offer something, not just to the students that are learning the art, but also to coaches who want to get some insight and in how to teach things a little bit differently. Yeah, I think that comes down a lot to it's almost a flexibility and mindset type thing. Mm. Um, an analogy that kind of came to my head as you were talking about this, because what you're talking about to me, it's, it's a very malleable dynamic learning style, uh, mm. much more, say, project sort of orientated where, hey, we're generally yep. looking to try and achieve this. We'll see how we get there and we'll see what holes and tribulations we come across on the way. Um, but I think of it like if you had like a slice of Swiss cheese with holes in it, um, engineering background makes me always think of Swiss cheese. Um, I'm on board. There's a million Swiss cheese analogies. Anyway, you've got uh, a slice of Swiss cheese with holes in it. The approach is that you're trying to put something with it that can mush and fill the gaps where needed rather than mm -hmm. having something firm, like a firm template training that isn't necessarily going to line up with each person's individual mm. holes. Um, so I love that. I'm stealing. That. I, yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I love that education style though. I think, I think in a crazy amount about uh, how we learn, it's actually, uh, I probably consume as many books and spend as much time thinking about how to learn and, say experience navigate life in a iterative way where mm. you're getting to learn from experiences probably spend as much time on that as thinking about supplements to be honest yeah. um, that's great that's mainly. really cool but it's i think it's so big because when i reflect back i did quite well in the standard school academic system mm -hmm. but realistically what i've taken away that's come to real life experience as project type work where I've just kind of gone at stuff and had yeah. to navigate it and learn from there rather than the textbook style things. Um, yeah. I, I like a reference. I, again, I think about this a lot because of Finn, my son would trying to raise him in a way that he gets a really good dynamic learning. Um, if the textbooks are great reference material, like you, you mentioned those cart like uh, layouts of, you know, uh, taxonomy sort of follow. Yeah. Um, if someone does this, then you do this. That stuff's great reference material, I think, when you're on the mm. path. But yeah. just starting from the start and then trying to get all the way to the end like that, it's probably not going to go. Um, I agree, man. And you, it, honestly, yeah, yeah, it's not going to stick. That, that approach, um, I think, was a weakness in my teaching. Um, Prior to going down south and teaching at um, in Queenstown, it's something that, you know, I've always tried to put in place, this teaching games for understanding dynamic. Um, but I, I honed it a lot in terms of how I like to do it um, down at Te Manawa. And um, I think that's one of the biggest things that 
I took from <laughs> my time with the team down there as approached that. And there were a couple of guys in um, in that. Well, there were a few in in that team, both owners and students, who um, really encouraged that in a way that kind of <clears throat> opened it up for me. And we, we we all had our different thoughts as to like what was the right way to go and um, you know how to blend those learning approaches. Um, but yeah, I think a weakness of my teaching, a, you know, a year, two years ago, um, was that I really tried to teach an instructional style because I was learning from instructionals. You know, so often we t teach how we learn. And there were things that I le learned through that ecological method of play-based learning that I would teach through that method. But then... There's so much jujitsu content out there and there's so complicated systems of movement that I would study them in instructional form. And then I would go, okay, well, how do I teach this? I would learn it like a script and then it would come out. <clears throat> and um, Vanderson would gently criticize and say, hey man, like it's, it's a lot like what teach one technique tonight. You just teach one technique. Yeah. And I was always like, no, but there's so much, you know, <laughs> like I was just excited and I wanted to, um, you know, share the stuff that I was finding, but it's like the Swiss cheese thing, right? Like I was trying to put solutions where I didn't know what the problems people were having were. And that's, that's been a real mindset shift for me. Um, big time. Vanderson sounds like a fantastic father figure, is my statement. Just those things like the gentle critic and, hey, let's just try one thing. I'm like, that is that is what a teacher, leader, everything. Like, that's yeah. the dream. Yeah. I'm gonna... Most of the time it was oh, yeah. like, I was just going to say, most, most of the time it's gentle critique. Sometimes I needed slightly less gentle critique, Oops. shall we say. Straight savage. And... Just, just like you know, a good coach, a good father figure, um, knows when to to put his bloody foot down. And <laughs> I, um, I, I have a lot of respect and admiration for for him as a coach and for everything that he's given me as a student and now as a coach as well. You know, it, it's it's not always easy. Sometimes you butt heads. You have different ideas about how things should happen. Um, and frustratingly, in, in nine out of ten cases he was right <laughs> and I just needed to catch up. Yeah. That's just how it is. But some, we've got to experience the problems for ourselves. And that was the thing is like, I wasn't running an academy. He was, yeah. he has been for 30 years and he just, he knew. And then when I went down South and was trying to implement some of the stuff that I was doing and the way that I was doing it, it was like, Oh, that's actually way harder than I thought. And, and I was losing some of the beginners who were like, Oh, it's too much. And the owners had to say, oh, you just less. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, oh, I'm going to throw a curveball. This is a fun sort of question that I wouldn't usually ask, but talking about Vanderson and his coaching, and he's got, as you said, like 30 years experience. What does he do that makes him a great coach? do you think like what, what what makes him a great coach because this is so you've got a real life example here of a real person doing this stuff mm. this isn't an idealist coach this is a real this is vanderson what makes him a great coach mm. a lot of things um 
it's kind of hard three. to the three times. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're such an engineer you're like okay give me a bullet pointed list of these oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um i think i think he has integrity i know he has integrity i think he's a good person um and I've heard a lot of others. I was listening to a podcast where somebody else was saying this about him, a guy called Alex Scott, who was Vanderson's first black belt at combat room. <clears throat> um, he, he's a, he's a good person. Um, and I think there's a lot to be said for just being a good person and showing up because you'll draw other people together, good people together. And if you're steadfast in your values, you know who you are, and you show up and give <clears throat> wholeheartedly without without expectation of return i think that that's a beautiful thing um and i think he has that in spades um i think he has amazing jujitsu that's it's not a given like i've trained at a lot of clubs where there's you know the, the head coach is good but, you know, Vanderson is, is technically super sound, plays quite a simple game. Um, simple in the sense of, like, no, not so many, like, flashy moving parts. But it's so effective. And he's so confident. And you watch him do jujitsu, and it's like, yep. Yeah, that's that's what we're trying to do, you know. Um, he uh, I heard a story that he um, we, we get a lot of visiting black belts and stuff. I think in the last 12, 13 years or something, he's had his guard passed once by a visiting black belt, and it was a guy called Shanji Hibiro who's like a multiple time world champion. Um, he's He's got amazing jujitsu, and I think just being able to be that example of the craft done well is inspiring to watch and to learn from. And so I think those two things alone are, it's enough to have the grounding to be a good coach. Um, and then on top of that, I think he's, he's got a thirst for learning. He's got a, um, He's a black belt, but he does have a, a white belt mentality a lot of the time. He's got a background in journalism, so really good at asking questions um, and fearless in asking questions, um, both in terms of, I think, you know, from my understanding, you have to talk to him about a lot of the inner workings of this stuff, but I think asking questions in a way that he's not afraid to get an answer that might not be what he expected Um but also for the other person, it's, there's no pulling of punches. I think he's, this is another thing that I think is actually underrated, um, is his maintenance of gym culture is like second to none. I have seen people come and go in the gym over the time that I've been involved. People who, you know, didn't fit or suit the environment that he knew he wanted to create so that students would have the most, the best opportunity to learn. And he pulled no punches in removing people who he didn't think lived up to that. 
Um, mm. And day to day in the gym, like how he treats everybody. As soon as you go in through that door, he knows your name and he never forgets your name. I've never seen him go to somebody. Oh, what's that guy's name? Unless he's never met them before. And then he never forgets yeah. it. Um, and yeah, but that's another expression of just being a good person. I think yeah. is he's genuine. He's there. He wants to learn for himself, get good at jujitsu and just help other people be good at jujitsu. Um, yeah, but those are some of the things. I, th I think that's a great answer. Um, one thing that stood out to me there is he sounds very present and like like he's he is in it for the craft and what he's doing right at that time um yeah that's Being cool in the present is actually a big theme for him as well he meditates he's done a lot of um vipassana style meditation retreats he's lectured in prisons on the benefits of mindfulness and meditation um and it's something that I learned from him specifically. Like he gave me the first book that I ever read about meditation. I think it was called Still Flowing Water by Ajahn Chah, which is like a free giveaway book from um, the Bodhinyanarama Monastery just out in Stokes Valley. And that led to me going and doing a retreat at the, at the monastery, living there for, for a few days in a silent meditation retreat. Um, but I remember realizing that the more present you are in your practice, the more focused you are, the more you slow things down and just become an observer, the more opportunity you will have to learn from the situations that are presented to you. And that's as true for life as it is for jujitsu. But the reality is like, I've seen this so much teaching now is that you teach and there's like a block of people that are paying attention. And there's like one guy who's kind of like picking his toe. And there's another dude who's like literally staring out the window. And then you go, one, two, let's give it a go. And <laughs> the guy's like, oh, oh, fuck. And you watch them go away to do the technique. And you've got like, you know, most people like, yeah, making their way through it. And the guy's like, oh, sorry, I like, I, I, I missed that. Like, you know, and it's like, you can see who's focused, who's present and who's yeah. not. And Vanderson is one of the most present people that I think I've ever met. I think that's great. Um, I want to translate. I had one kind of one last big category that I wanted to ask about is the competitive side. So how would you say the experience in competitive jiu-jitsu, because you've been to a few competitions, um, you go to one in Ireland later this year. Yeah, there's um, an invitational in Ireland. Yep. Chaos, grappling. How, how do you chaos? Um, <laughs> anyway, um, how do you think that kind of differs a bit? Like, what sort of game are you bringing in different in a competitive environment, say, compared to just your everyday? <clears throat> there's a lot to that question. I think it's a great question. Um, you're really good at asking questions, Thomas. <laughs> um, I think. I mean, I, I feel like you're asking about um, how do I do my jujitsu differently in a competition to being on the mats in class? Yeah. And, <clears throat> so I'll, and I'll start. Probably. Yeah. One thing I could just build on for you is uh, what sort of, what does it pull out of you too? Like, mm. I imagine it's more aggressive. 
um, and you're holding less back. Um, so, yeah. Well, um, I could give you any number of aphorisms about how you train for how you should compete or how you should train for how you compete. But the essence of it is that your training should as closely as po possible replicate the competitive environment that you're going to be working into because at the end of the day quote unquote your performance will rise to the level of your conditioning not your intention you know <clears throat> so if you're going to train um and it, it you get very specific as well like um, regulation time lengths for different rule sets like are you having a five minute bout or is it a 10 minute bout is it 10 minutes points based or is it 10 minutes submission only <clears throat> they all have different approaches or is five minutes submission only you know is it also quite common it's like you should be training with rounds of that length and style because and like if you're competing in a gi competition you should train in the gi you know, and try and make that your focus because the more concentrated you are within that training modality, the better your performance will be at the end of the day. Um, the, the pace of competition in submission only five minute rounds versus a 10 minute points based round is totally different. Like if you train submission only focus and then go to a point style 10 minute round, like you'll gas yourself out. You blow your load in the first you know two or three minutes chasing the sub um and you won't be so worried about being on bottom position like being trapped in a pin because you know you're just chasing the sub it's like that's all mindset and if you're thinking about that stuff in the moment if that's not automatic then you're putting barriers between yourself and the podium and i think that's there's a lot to be said for um training focus for um, specific performance outcomes even down to like i mean some people will go to the extent of the time of day that you'll be competing like if you're competing at um 10 a.m ideally you want to be used to training at 10 a.m you know because how do you approach the start of your day what do you eat what do you drink what's in your body like how do your guts feel when you're walking onto the mats if you're always training at you know, 6.30 in the evening and have never trained at 10 a.m., then you don't know how your body's going to react to, you know, you've just woken up, depending on what time you wake up in the morning, and then you're thrown into this environment. It's like, that can throw you. But you, you get used to that stuff over time. You can refine and refine and refine and refine your training practice. Taking a step back from those specifics the nature of your training if you're trying to be competitive should be different to if you're just trying to be a coach <clears throat> and that's one of the biggest challenges that i've found personally is balancing those two worlds obviously hundreds of people all around the world do it every day some people do it better than others but the idea is that if you want to train to be successfully competitive, then your training needs to be selfish. You're searching out the toughest rounds in the gym constantly. You're always putting everything into rounds, you know, obviously it, recovery periods taken into account, but when you're training hard, you're training hard. You're not 
taking it easy and playing, you're like, this is my A game. I'm going to execute that on these different people. That's your objective. And we've just talked about the way that you know most people will learn, will be experiential, will be play-based. Mm. So there's value to that. But if I go in with my A game against, you know, even a blue belt, I was going to say day one white belt, but that'd be a joke. Like, but, you know, blue belt, yeah. most, like a lot of purple belts, it's a different world. And not everybody is there for that. And you have to appreciate that and respect that and really nurture that because they're your training partners. That's your family, right? You don't want to just monster everybody in the gym because they won't want to play. <laughs> it's like you um, posted this thing in your story the other day that um, quote about the rats playing and that like once oh, yes. a bigger rat has a established dominance on a smaller rat, they'll go into longer cycles of play where if the bigger rat doesn't let the little rat win at least like 30, 40% of the time, the little rat will stop wanting to play. And if we learn through play and nobody wants to play with you, then you stop learning, you stagnate. So there's this balance between being a good coach, understanding your students' needs, um, understanding problem solving, giving time for people to play for themselves and come to you with questions rather than force feeding information. Um, and all of that requires a lot of attention. It takes bandwidth to give all of that. And you're trying to do that at the same time as you're getting the hardest rounds of the gym all the time. You're taking. It's a lot of taking from people. Whereas coaching is about, it should be about giving. <clears throat> and so it's a relationship between give and take. That's, <laughs> yeah. you know, you're managing those outcomes. But <clears throat> that that's the biggest thing. And, you know, I still haven't figured out the perfect balance. I know that in the long run, I want to be a great coach more than I want to be a great competitor. Um, mm. I think it suits me to my core better than just trying to go out there and be number one. I definitely want to experience that partly because I don't want to be teaching for people from a place of an experience. I don't want to be trying to put athletes through something that I don't understand myself and that I haven't felt myself. And I also think whilst competition isn't everything in jujitsu and you can be great at jujitsu without ever competing, I think the nature of the jujitsu community is that competition and competitive success validates you. It's a foot in the door. And so I think for me, trying to build my own coaching brand, one of the most expedient ways to build my brand as an effective jiu-jitsu coach is to be an effective competitor and, and make sure people remember my name, you know? Mm. And um, that sounds a bit egoic, but really it's like I'm trying to do something bigger than that, you know? I want to go out there and compete. And even if I lose, as long as you remember my name, that's another bit of Anderson's advice. He... Uh, told me before I went in to do this invitational, he goes, well, Peter, I'm going to do his Portuguese <laughs> accent. I'm not going to do it justice. Well, Peter, win, lose, or draw, make them remember your name. And I've never forgotten that. It's, I, I just want people to know who I am and that I'm legit, that I belong there, and that I have something to offer. 
and you know everybody knows that everybody has something to offer but i am trying to build something so i need that um also i like competing like i do like getting out there and putting the skills to the test i think that's the pinnacle of the mats don't lie and sometimes you're gonna get got <laughs> i've gotten got plenty yeah yeah i think it's uh i really like how you're coming at it almost from a gathering experience perspective um yeah. but testing your a game it's stress testing your a game again we're gonna get a little too engineering but yeah you've got to stress <laughs> yeah. test the thing to actually know if it's any good and i think it's fair enough that the community judges people a little bit on their competitive game because because yeah. that is the stress test it's either i think the the two stress tests that i'd see from someone like that is how well do they compete and then mm. the people they've coached how well are they competing because yep. can you bring out a good competitor in someone else is very different mm. to can you become a good competitor yourself i think yeah and um, man i think that's a really it's a really beautiful point and i think different coaches are better or, wor at, or worse at coaching like teaching a person the jujitsu that they can execute to be effective in competition but coaching mindset a psychological aspect of of training um knowing when to push somebody past what they think their limits are and when to ease back on the throttle because you might lose them you know you don't want to break somebody but vanison came very close <laughs> a couple of times to to breaking me and i i just knew like nah i'm not I'm not backing off from this. I'm putting everything into this and I'll break time and time again, but I'm just, I'm not going to show that as much as possible, you know? Um, and I think you've got to have a good relationship with your coach um, to be able to put that trust in them um, that you know that when they're pushing your buttons and pushing you beyond what you think you can do, that you're safe. And, I think some coaches aren't good at that. They just push and push and push, push and push. And they think I have to break you every time so that you get tough. And it's like, no, like we've still got to be having fun. We're still little rats, right? We've still got to feel like we're moving forward in the context of, of what we're doing and feeling safe is a big part of that. You know, are you safe? Are you confident? Are you happy? One of the other best pieces of advice that Vanderson ever gave me. <clears throat> I feel like I'm writing a love letter to the guy right now. Um, it's good. Was... I actually, uh, partway through, I'm going to interject, but partway through when you mentioned Vanderson, I was like, you know what? I'm going to see what Pete loves about Vanderson. Like, this is his <laughs> coach, a coach that's a big person. Let's yeah. let's bring it out of him. Um, and and <laughs> yeah. there we go. Yeah. Um, one of... Yeah, one of the best pieces of advice he ever gave to me was when I was going hard, like I had probably just been through a couple of like breaking point moments and in, in training in the gym with him, with my teammates, you know, like I say a lot about Vanderson, like it's the whole team. The whole oh, team yeah. is a part of that journey. Um, rising tide, lifting all boats, like that is really important to say. Um, I've been blessed with great training partners as well as great coaches um 
yeah, I, I was going through a, a difficult patch in my training. I was getting ready for this, um, this competition. And he kind of took me aside at the start of a class because I was getting amped up and ready to go. And he just knew the moment to come over and go, well, Peter, I, I don't want to see you today unless you are smiling. I was like, what? And he's like, don't worry about anything else. Don't think about your technique. Don't think about aggression or this. I just want you to go out today and have fun. Just smile. Just enjoy it. That's actually hitting me quite hard right now. <laughs> yes. It's, um, it's, it's, and that, that meant a lot, man. Like, yeah. And I, uh, I think it's, it's, it's huge because you can get stuck in the trench and forget mm. why you're doing something. Um, yeah. And so just having that moment to feel it and enjoy it, I, it all of a sudden your perspective changes. Everything's yeah. different. And you just get to do the thing. Because if it stops being fun, if we stop smiling, then we stop coming. That's that's it. You know, some people are absolute savages that will grind through being unhappy. And that's not me. <laughs> I can grind through a certain amount of the barriers towards that. But if the overarching process or the underlying process isn't fun, isn't enjoyable, isn't enriching, fuck that. No time for that. Life's Life is long, but it's too short for that, I think. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, just smile. And time and time again, when people have asked me, like, what's your number one piece of advice for somebody going out and competing for the first time? Smile. It's like, and they're all just as taken aback as I was at hearing it. But it's like, don't worry about it. Like, you overthinking things. You put too much pressure on yourself. Worry about what you're looking like. Just smile and trigger that physical reaction of being present and enjoying what you're doing. And uh, and that was when I went through to win um, Purple Belt Nationals. It was just before that, that competition. He was like, just smile. And I remember that on the day. On the mats, before every match, I made sure I was smiling. And I still do that. I think that's big. I'm going to translate into a slightly more selfish goal now. Let's go. I I want to learn how I can better help the supplementation around martial arts in general, but also mm. specifically Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu because it's uh, it's one of the big ones right now. Mm. And... I I personally, say from my perspective, I see a lot of holes that could be plugged, but I don't know because I don't. I'm not doing it. So right. from your perspective, <clears throat> and we've bounced like with how many hours have we spent bouncing back on supplements? A lot, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I'm um, hugely appreciative of, man. Like you've given so much time to me and and better understanding what these kind of molecules do and why we should bother taking them. Well, it. I think it goes both ways because for me, kind of like you, I really enjoy the teaching side. Mm. I, I love to see that spark. But then also there's something so satisfying about being able to see someone who's doing awesome and going, I think you could do 
just a little bit better with my <laughs> extra little, a little bit of spice. Come on, you're awesome, man. You could be and... even awesomer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's what it's the human um, it's the human pursuit of just just right. how, how can we increment just a little bit more, um, yeah. as well as being able to stay in the game. And I think being able to stay doing it is one of the Brazilian mm. Jiu Jitsu challenges. Um, mm. one of my favorite kind of, yeah, yeah. Mantras is, uh, the victors are those who get to keep playing. It's not, mm. it's not the person who's necessarily winning. The person that's really winning is the one that get, keeps getting to do what he really loves. Yeah. And if you have an awesome five year career and then your joints are buggered, you're just gassed out. Have you won? Or so would you true. be way happier if you had another 20, 30 years where you got to roll and enjoy your son? And yeah. I, I, I think about the longevity side probably more than I think about the performance side because I think so much of it's mind game and um, very, I'd have to individually go through supplementation testing with each individual person to really hone out the extra performance there. But yeah. the longevity side is something that I think is a much lower hanging fruit. Um, on a flip to you, what sort of problems do you think could benefit from supplementation or um, other nutritional and lifestyle? We could like it, it could <laughs> put it all together, right? Wider. Yeah, yeah. Well. I have to try and restrict myself to answer your question because like with all of your questions they're so rich that I'm just like ah. <laughs> I want to talk about all the things um problems recovery so being able to recover from a session fast enough to train again the next day or if you're doing two sessions a day um, I think recovery is huge. That's probably the number one problem that I think is aided by supplementation, actually. Like, there's different modalities of affecting that recovery curve, but a lot of it breaks down to recovery, like the different taxations on energy systems in the body. Um, stress. We talked a little bit before about the stress of competition you know smiling is kind of like that was a little bit of supplementation for pete you know mm. um it was something the release of the chemicals that you have when you smile that's that's not it's not just trite advice like that's a real solution to somebody who's getting too worked up so being hugely worked up um being able to warm up fast you know, get ready for a match, staying warm, blood flow throughout the course of a day, I think is, um, is big. You touched on longevity. So, you know, playing the long game, jujitsu can be an, it, it, I mean, as far as sports go, I haven't had a lot personally of significant injuries. I, you know, part of that is a mindset thing because I'll tap rather than have my knee shattered to pieces. Like, I'm playing the long game. I want to show up to training on Monday. That's more important to me than a fucking $6 medal. And so I'll have a tendency to tap early if I feel a real threat. Um, but injuries are a real thing. So a lot of it is joint-based stuff, hyperextension, rotational um, 
uh, submissions that cause damage to tendons, um, ligaments. Bone health, I think, is not insignificant. Um, you know, I've seen people's tibias, fibias, like, snap under pressure of some movements. You know, it does happen, and bone density, bone health yeah. will play into that. So how... <clears throat> how um how you account for that in your nutrition and your prep regime is not insignificant um yeah but number one recovery i think that's probably the biggest thing yeah there's probably a bit i to think go on the with. recovery side yeah the recovery side is is clearly so massive uh in terms of how it translates across in the community TRT as in <coughs> testosterone and other androgens are massive in BJJ and I get this not just from BJJ guys but also from hearing from the doctors um, helping them manage that uh, it's it's so massive because that does upregulate that recovery side a lot hmm. um, I think the challenge Can you there explain is managing to me? the longevity sorry I, I got in there this is go <clears throat> i want to i want to take over the questions for a second um go go can you explain to me i mean i have some awareness but can you explain how trt works how does hormonal supplementation um have a relationship to recovery time my understanding is that you're literally injecting testosterone into your body which your body needs to be able to recover build muscle it's involved in a number of different processes right and so your body can only produce so much of that if you introduce exogenous testosterone into the body it'll be able to do that stuff faster is that close yeah yeah it very much is um what we could we could look at this at a, as a bit of an example um from a high level point of view testosterone is something that facilitates many recovery processes and uh, most notably processes that do involve muscle building but also uh, you'd think i want to make sure i'm quite specific here but around bone health too there is um there's actually many hormonal influences on there, but all of this, uh, it's it's kind of like a amplifier, shall we say. Uh, so it's not the end or be all, but if you have more, you might do better with what you've got. And so the other things will be, say, testosterone in itself is not a building block for your muscles or your bones or anything like that. So you need the necessary materials. And that's one level that will help amplify um, the building of muscle and such. And so when we're thinking about recovery, you might have some sort of, not necessarily, it doesn't actually have to be damaged tissue. Um, this is a fun, more narrative is coming out on this, but you just need to be stressing the tissue to send the signaling pathways to we need to grow more we need to do more um and this is why i think the body is so cool is it's just so responsive um <laughs> it's like somehow it knows shout out to the human uh, body 
yeah 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 it's um <laughs> it's wild uh but that's one thing that helps your body say i'm going to recover more faster mm. and I'm, I'm gonna push that more and of course that has downsides too um such as heart enlargement and other things that that mm. aren't ideal right um on specifically what we'd be considering is for testosterone replacement therapy for example uh what is someone's baseline hormonal profile in the first place and how are they responding to that because you've got the hormone itself and then you've got the receptors that it's acting on so um you could almost view it like the hormone being fuel and then the receptors being like different engines and cars mm -hmm. and if people have different engines they will maybe it's a, a more thirsty engine that needs more fuel to do the same thing or so forth um and that's why it's such an individual tailored thing and shouldn't be tackled with a blind everyone has the same amount approach um yep. so that's that's probably like one of the big things if someone as we age we have declining testosterone levels and therefore someone tends to benefit more from testosterone replacement therapy as they age because they're getting further away from uh, a really nice balance point in the body and sure. really there's always performance <clears throat> longevity trade-offs with pretty much everything um but there is some generally accepted healthy range and <laughs> it can be really beneficial to people to be on the upper end of that healthy range is what we can say and then can i cut in there just wait, for a second yeah so yep. this healthy range i th you know i think that's really interesting i think people should definitely get their blood work done as one thing i checked my blood work um for testosterone levels um, partly because of what we were doing in terms of talking about testosterone supplementation. The healthy range was given to me as being between 9 and yes. 25, as being like the normal healthy range. I was something like a 19, 17, 19.5 or something. Mm. So not capping the scale, not super low, but in terms of that healthy range, that number nine to 25 like what, what does that mean it's what that number is representing uh that scale there's kind of two different scales that they'll see but that's the nanomole per liter so that's mm. uh how many you think how many molecules if you had a a glass that's one mm -hmm. liter of water that's how many molecules of testosterone are in that water compared to water um okay. you have the other scale and where people might get mixed up is the nanogram so uh, nanogram per liter and that's mm -hmm. where you'll see measurements and like is someone between 300 and 800 nanograms might be um the healthy sort of range so okay it's it's just a measure of quantity per <laughs> unit of volume um one thing to consider in those uh, is that it's not the full equation um some of that is bound up and not active and so that's where we talk about sex hormone binding globulin. That's one mm. of the things that Tonga Ali is, shall we say, famous for working on okay. um, or love to work for working on where it makes 
you have just a little bit more free testosterone because most of the testosterone in your body yes um most of the testosterone in your body is actually bound up and that's valuable um because it acts as maybe a bit of a buffer um to provide kind of a consistent hormonal profile over time uh but yeah there's how much is free and then there's also your receptor density so how many engines you have available to receive that fuel and then also the receptor sensitivity so you could say how um how much that engine does whenever it receives fuel um, right. so it's I'm, I'm always really careful again like you with bjj uh we've got to appreciate that it's so much more than one measurement and even sure. with all those measurements the individual variation person to person is crazy 100 now so uh yeah i think that's a big one to appreciate what i would say uh, to anyone thinking about trt or any other performance enhancing drugs very much along that hormonal profile have a medical professional working with you all the way and do your testing mm. sort of thing it needs to be an iterative process otherwise you you might get lucky for a while but inherently by the nature of kind of pushing something and pushing something that's maybe on the it's higher risk sort of side than what we're commonly dealing with with just say protein or creatine supplementation um you, you want to be more careful especially sure. if you want to have that longevity if you want to keep getting to go um so yeah working Stay with a healthy little rat who knows the truck yeah yeah and and that's where i'm like i am i get questions on this stuff all the time i'm not that person um that's mm. it's a whole specialization on its own <clears throat> the guys that are coaching people through it you know 30 40 guys at a time they have so much more information than anyone mm. could ever get just the depth from of knowledge there is pretty crazy as well eh? yeah there's like one yeah. endro endocrinologist in all of new zealand i'm told that he's based up in auckland it's like one guy i'm i'm sure there's probably a few but whether or not they're actively working in clinical settings and all that sort of thing yeah it's it's what we definitely know is that there's a massive lacking uh like there's there's so few people that actually understand it and on the medical side um, Mm. i guess there's not so much interest um the the battling enough fires that they're like that's we're not going to tackle that right true (laughs) true um which is fair. Like, there's not enough. Let's put aside cancer for just a second and get guys yeah. real fucking jacked. <laughs> well, let's talk about that. the real issues, right? Being, I know it's not just about jacked, that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it could actually yeah. help with the cancer. There's so many arguments you could have on this stuff. Like, um, I was talking to. It's you laugh, but uh, I was talking to one one of the bros. Um, I think I can name him Jordan, Dr. Jordan, and he does work with um, uh, a lot of bodybuilders and such. And he was talking about how, because uh, he does standard medical practice working in hospitals too, um, one of his placements was actually at a cancer ward type situation right. and people are stuck in their bed all the time and they're just depressed. Um, but also the wasting away a little bit much and just mm. all sorts of things 
what can you do to help them have a quality, better quality of life? Well, actually bringing in some TRT might dramatically increase their quality of life mm. because they'll just have a bit more drive to do things and a bit more ability to sustain muscle, um, stuff like that. Um, it comes at costs, though, as always. Um, what we could circle around, I, it's not really like an advertisement. I, th- I think it's just one of those things that people can pick what they want for their life and accept the trade-offs but what they should always do is make sure that they're going in with their learning iterative mindset with something as complex as that is my mm. is my take um i don't even know how we got onto that um, you were asking about what problems there are that can be solved oh, yeah. or contributed to with supplementation and i we were in the middle of discussing recovery and mm. testosterone and I asked the question around what is TRT? Like, what does that process do? And so then we got to the point of there's a healthy range and and then I cut in with an extra question and, and now here we are. Yeah, I think one accepting, one thing to acknowledge with a healthy range is it's not arbitrary, but it is mm. almost arbitrary. Like they've kind of looked at a population-wide thing and said sure. this is our sort of ballpark so Hmm. i wouldn't hold yourself too hard to those numbers um one of the things i always talk with guys like hey how is your body just feeling and running like that's an important metric too because that's our end goal is on um numbers aren't everything yeah yeah numbers aren't everything um and and that's also where we translate around to we do have there's a million compounds out there that will also alter how your body produces and uses and manages like all those levers that I mentioned with the amount and sensitivity and number of receptors, those can all be altered too by Mm. lifestyle practices and compounds. And so a lot of what I tend to like to work in is just how can we alter those just a little bit. And it's a much more, um, it's less effective in terms of you're not going to bump your testosterone up heaps really quick. But you, you're you playing with a, a system that's maybe a little bit more flexible with how your own body's performance is. And that's one of the reasons I really like it. I, I kind of want to play with the body more than introducing, um, I don't, I don't want to call TRT a crude tool, but it is, it's bringing in and saying, you kind of have to do this. And that's why the body responds a little bit more aggressively so if it's poorly managed the body's not going to produce its own testosterone enough right. and then you end up with long-term consequences so trying to see how we can complement our own hormonal systems i like a lot more on the longevity side but i'm never going to claim that taking tonga ali is going to be as good as trt on the performance sure. like for the day you're charging testosterone um, yeah <laughs> some sense. people might yeah, individual variation is huge. Um, but yeah, I think one circle on is, well, sp- what what supplements are common in BJJ, do you think? Um, rightly or wrongly. I'm just going to say the stuff that I hear people are taking. Most common? Mm. Yeah. Protein? BCAAs? usually in little drinks like or powders that people put in their training bottles 
and i mean specifically bcaa's like i see a lot of that there's other you know some people will take like pre-workout for jujitsu um you know mixed bag but and there's you know obviously horses well not horses of courses it's like there's levels there's a quality issue i think is the reason i'm kind of smirking more more than anything else it's like um I think things like glucosamine, chondroitin, like joint-based supplements, like I think people have a rough idea that we're putting a lot of stress on our joints. We often end up with injuries. Taking something like that can help keep you on the straight and narrow, so to speak. Um, yeah, maybe electrolytes for hydration. Um, I tend to just chuck some Himalayan crystal salt in my water if I'm feeling like I'm not getting the hydration I need. But that that's pretty common. Um, beyond that, creatine, that, like some people are taking that. Nowhere near as much as people should, but your question was what are people currently taking? Um, yeah. And I, I think it's that. It's like protein, joint stuff, vaguely, um bcaa's and some sort of electrolytes like that that's probably the broad strokes i liked hearing the glucosamine and chondrosin because that would be one of my that's it's probably the one of the lowest hanging fruits i think you could have there where it's like you're bringing in building blocks to help with the recovery of your uh joint and ligaments Hmm. and that is a no-brainer when you're putting more stress on. That's going to be harder to meet from a nutritional, like a diet perspective when you're doing such a, um, when you're applying so much more pressure to that. I think that would be one of the first I'd say to anyone. Uh, feel like cheap and just uh, the longevity benefit. Massive. Protein, I I always like, we get a, you get a lot of um, people just getting in supplements coming to the store around protein. And one of my always statements is, how much protein are you getting in your, in your diet? Because this is <laughs> just like food. Yeah, if you don't know, yeah, then like, hey, you can feel stuff out. How well am I recovering? Stuff like that is, is definitely a thing. I can, hmm. I've used protein enough and kept track of kind of daily intake enough that I... I, there's a, fe- a feelable difference in feelable, uh, feelable <laughs> difference in recovery at a certain range. Sure, but it's just a food thing. So uh, I'm always going to say if you can get protein from whole food sources, not from supplement sources, yeah. then that's it's probably better because you're getting uh, some other nutrients and stuff along with it. For sure. Um, are you getting a ton of background noise with Finn right now? I can hear a little bit. It's not, it's not bothering me. Okay. I love the we'll sound of a child laughing. Just take a quick pause. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's just woken up from a nap, so we'll just take him downstairs now. Um, ah, screw it. People can listen to him. Um, <laughs> I think people need the sound of children in their lives more. Yeah. Um, right. We've become too isolated from it and... And silo groups anyway um suck it up sorry guys uh one thing i would say so on the protein is yeah if we can have whole food sources better the convenience of a protein shake is awesome though 
Um, I'm near like I, I I personally still have uh, like a shake a day sort of thing because the convenience of getting 20 30 grams is just awesome sometimes a timing thing too right so you know if you're just finishing a workout some people are really strict with their meal prep and really effective at like having you know 150 grams of chicken ready to go with some rice after their you know training session but a lot of jiu-jitsu guys, like, we're just not. Guys and girls. Like, so we finish training. It's really easy to just take your protein shaker with some protein in it to the fucking tap. Fill it up, shake it, and bang, you know, 25, 50 grams of protein into your body. And, you know, you can get it in after your workout morning session and be ready for the evening kind of thing. Like, the convenience and the timing, I think, is a, a factor. Hey, Finn. Say hi, Pete. Um, For a second, I thought that was his that... hand, and I was like, oh, his <laughs> hand is huge. He's going to grow to be a beast. <laughs> um, That's not Tomcat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or is it? Anyway, um, who knows what I'm putting in this experiment? Um, <laughs> I think one of the things on that timing and stuff like that, though, is that it's. It's part of the busy lifestyle challenge, and for better or worse, people have very busy lifestyles. Sure. And so if you're going to try and optimize multiple things, it can come at costs, and one of those costs might be just getting your protein from a convenient, not necessarily whole food source as much. Yeah. But it's, um, yeah, it's part of it. I think my personal ideal is that one day I would love to be not so busy that I need to do that. Like, I would like yeah. to actually not have to meal prep everything, but always have time to spend an enjoyable amount of time cooking and, you know, relaxing in that way. Totally. Um, but different strokes for different boats, different people. I don't know. Whatever. Um, everyone, <laughs> you can choose your own. But, um, yeah. My partner is much uh, better at that than me, the, the cooking side of things. I'm a very functional consumer of food she's kind of teaching me slowly like a neanderthal with a club in the kitchen um to understand flavor palettes a bit more and, and just enjoy the process which is a beautiful process for me who um you know i spent you know the first couple of years of my heavy training eating almost nothing but salads and chicken like I'd have chicken yeah. salads twice a day and I would just change up how I would consume those. It'd be like, and I'd be trying to get two grams of protein per kilo of body weight. And I would try and calculate how much chicken I need to eat plus a bit of tuna and some eggs um, in order to get that. And so I just ate a lot of chicken salads. <laughs> that was it. I I think the thing is, from that basic nutritional standpoint, it works. Doing that works. Like to be yeah. frank, all the meals that I just prepare for myself, um, I cook breakfast for the household too. It's straightforward sort of meals. Yeah. Um, and then we try to make sure that we have like a family type meal every day, which is dinner. And mm. that's uh, it's nice if you can have more intention in cooking it, not just the chicken salad yeah. as stripped back as it gets. But um, yeah, I think so. Getting your protein from whole food sources, awesome. Um, but protein shake has its role. Just probably actually, again, evaluate. Is this a relevant role that I need? Mm. Um, you could play it by feel, but I there's some pretty good rule 
examples out there. So many people have um, been paying attention to this one that maybe looking at a rule like the two grams per kilo body weight sort of thing and starting from there could be a good way to do it. Um, One thing that's for sure is that the nutritional health guidelines on like minimum slash recommended dietary intake of protein are a joke. Uh, And they're based from like the 1920s or so forth when people are smaller and the point was basically to not waste away muscle tissue it wasn't (laughs) to maintain an ideal amount it was how much protein god forbid yeah yeah it was like how much protein does someone need to just not to not waste away away to die (laughs) yeah um or to not have significant increase in disease risk outcomes is that sure yeah um so don't base it off that do look at some of the guides that athletes and others are putting out and um, then everyone can pick their battles. Other ones, BCAAs, that's fitting in the same sort of boat, really, I think. So I my think my that... thoughts on this, and you, you can kind of tell me whether, yeah. you know, I'm on the money or off the money. Um, I, like BCAAs, branched-chain amino acids, are, they're just proteins, Right. And you've got like kind of essential amino acids and branch chain amino acids. BCAs are like a, a certain little bracket of those amino acids, right? And if you're getting the protein that you need from natural sources or from a protein powder, like why do you need to add BCAs on top of that? Like what what are you getting out of you know this you know seventy dollar tub? <laughs> it like to me it comes across as expensive urine most of the time and so my question is like what situation would genuinely necessitate or um make useful consuming bcaas i'll come out the gate with uh and this can kind of preface the whole thing bcaas have been marketed extremely well and they receive far too much attention for the value that they provide to Mm. the average athlete okay to the average consumer that's what i would say so they are like never in my first call of this is what someone should bring in Mm. um if they want to use that totally cool i don't see downsides um it's one of those things that I think is, yeah, for the benefit you gain, you're spending a lot more money. Um, we'll just break down the concept a little bit. A protein is essentially a structure made up of a bunch of amino acids bound together. Mm-hmm. And then when you consume the protein, it will break apart into those individual amino acids and through your digestive system and then absorb through. When you're consuming something as, say, just those amino acids by itself then it's it's kind of just doing the first stage of the digestion for you that's the really big advantage um not talking about real life practicality here from a clinical like a mechanistic research perspective the advantage of bcaas is rapid absorption um like it's one less step that's going on ease of absorption you're kind of getting it into your body and tissues to act faster mm-hmm. because it's 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 done a step for you um 
probably is of digestibility as in it's putting less strain on your system than that too convenient intra workout as well if you're you're struggling to get the numbers from the meals that you have during the day maybe having that extra boost during your workout would be useful it's a factor in the sense so the big reason it comes in as intra workout rather than just drinking protein shakes into a workout, is that ease of digestibility where you're mm. not trying to put on extra load in your guts. And the um, the fact of that essentially when you are doing like high activity, your your digestive system isn't as active because right. blood flow is diverted to other tissues. And so it, it becomes more relevant to have that ease of absorption and digestibility mm. in that intra-workout case. Okay. However, this is still not to say that I think normal Joe blogs should be bothering thinking about it. Yeah. I think your meat monster massive bodybuilders, no-brainer, because they're just trying to saturate. Yeah, like that, they're trying this to... Guy. They're, <laughs> even for them, even retaining muscle tissue... They have to have ludicrous amounts of protein. And they're just trying to stay saturated all the time. And so, Mm. therefore, they do, when they're training for two hours or more, they do want to have something during that to maintain saturation. So it makes tons Mm. of sense for them. I think pretty much everyone else, it's, it's, I wouldn't just put it down as an expensive urine. It is actually doing its purpose. Sure. But it is not a noticeably meaningful one to that person. Um, okay. There, there's probably so many other levers that are more significant that they could work on uh, compared to that. Um, just consume whole protein. Um, make sure you're on a good, like if you're taking amino acids during training and you don't even know what your total daily protein intake is, then you're so ass backward. Um, mm-hmm. because you're going down to a very refined point and expensive point per per net gain for less return. That's fascinating. Um, That's a really good yeah, explanation. Probably the the last sort of branching there is that so you've got your BCAAs branch chain amino acids and and then what are called essential amino acids. The difference there is that uh it's just kind of the essential amino acids are a group that are categorized as we need to ingest these for our bodies to function somehow. We don't mm-hmm. need it by this broken down form. It could be by a whole food protein and you're getting these EAAs and BCA, like you're getting all these different amino acids and things like whey proteins and meat proteins, etc. We're you get the separations and people are like really into one or the other or a bit of both is certain ones like leucine. Leucine is an amino acid. That's part of that BCAA group. Usually BCA has three. Um, but leucine in particular, uh, that works on a receptor that helps upregulate muscle growth. And there's some indication if you are kind of really pumping that receptor at the same similar time or close to exercise or when you've you've stressed that muscle, mm. then there's some extra benefit to be gained there. And so then when that research came out, clearly some companies got some really good marketing behind it and they got everyone psyched about that. And they're like, okay, you've got to do this because you're maximizing muscle growth. Thing is, 
you are optimizing that thing. How are you maximizing and optimizing throughout the rest of your day, though? Because if you're not really doing shit throughout the rest of your day, that little extra 5% there, or whatever number, arbitrary number there I put out, but that little extra is not going to be the the huge thing that you could do. Yeah. Maybe sleeping an extra half an hour would be a bit of cool. I think that's a really good point about sleep. Um, and it's... A, throughout the course of our conversation it's been popping up in my mind like um we've got this theme of like what's the what's the long end of the lever right where can we put maximum effort to get maximum results in terms of performance and um i love that that's a really core value that you take into your approach with any kind of um supplementation advice um, and I guess for me, like the way that I look at my own <clears throat> supplementation, and we talked about this in, a, in our first ever conversation, actually, is like, um, the main things for me that help my recovery are sleep and that protein intake. So if I'm getting like four or five hours sleep a night, well, like don't worry about supplementing an extra 50 grams of protein a day like go back to bed bro or like get to bed a little bit earlier because like the performance benefit you'll get from a full seven and a half to nine hours sleep will be bigger than any of this other like shorter end of the lever stuff that you're trying to do so like the building blocks for me are like protein and sleep like if my diet Obviously, it's bigger than protein and sleep. Like, we've got to eat more yeah. than that to be healthy. Like, Sun exposure, you know, your vitamin yeah. D, sleep, iron levels, like, that kind of the core stuff. Like, that has to be yeah. core because otherwise, all of the little adjustments, what I'm hearing from you, all the little adjustments that we try to make, it's like a drop in the ocean. And we won't see performance benefits from that stuff until we've actually done that the the broad stroke stuff the really like heavy lifting and the core work that we get to a point where we're actually refining at a a small enough level that we're going to notice those things because otherwise like you supplement all the stuff have a bad night's sleep and it's like you don't feel anything because you're just so busy feeling not having slept enough right and there's very real like sleep i think is one of those ones where um there's very real effects where if you don't have enough, say, sleep, then it may even just kind of blockade functions such mm. that a supplement has like 10% of its value that it would on good sleep. Really? Like it can, like it could be, again, arbitrary numbers, but sure, sure. It, it can almost, it's like a, it's getting in the way. Um, wow. So uh, I think, and this is where you get this concept of like foundational health things. But mm. it makes sense. So from an easy to understand standpoint, so we don't understand, like people are learning a lot about sleep right now, but complexity, everything. I, I don't want to pretend that I understand what the hell's going on. That's for damn <laughs> sure. Um, if people do want to but, know more about what's going on in sleep, Matthew Walker's <laughs> book, The Science yes. of Sleep and Dreaming, that is fucking Love that gold. Yeah. Shout out to Matthew Walker. Yeah. Dr. And, Matthew and Walker. He, I think since then there's just been an explosion of sleep research kind of around that. And I'm sure there was tons before too. Um, 
but he made that popularized yeah. i think quite well in terms i love of the idea of an explosion of sleep by the way just yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> everyone's just like i'm gonna sleep <laughs> um but if we think about it again like easy to understand people are used to this discussion like muscle building things why are you trying to signal to build tissue and do all this fancy stuff like trt if you're not consuming enough protein yeah. um that protein is is required uh to build the sure. tissue or yeah. certain amino acids from it is required so it doesn't matter what the hell you do if you're not having enough building blocks to do something then you just kind of you're you're literally sitting in a car pumping the accelerator and it's got no yeah. gas. And you're like, ooh, what if I hit the turbocharge? Yeah, yeah. Is that going to go? <laughs> I'm going to go way faster if I hit the turbocharge. You're still not going anywhere. You're going nowhere. It's anywhere. like trying to build a house. Like you're building a house yeah. and you have no wood. And you're like, I'm going to get the strongest builders. I'm going to get the strongest yeah. builders from the best team. I'm going to pay them really well, get them on site, and they're going to make yeah. the, this house so fucking fast. And they get on yeah. site and they're like, bro, where's the wood? And you're like, uh, uh, I spent so much time focusing on you guys, I didn't get us any wood. Exactly. <laughs> and I think that's what happens a lot. Uh, yeah. And that's obviously an extreme case, but what mm. uh, what I'm often trying to manage with people, um, I love the really intricate science sort of side and all the mm. complex mechanisms, but when it comes to the individual real lifetime, it's, uh, okay, what are you doing that, you're you're missing out on foundationals so mm. sleep protein um calorie like carbohydrate to gut health um, probably gut health yeah like all those foundationals how are those because that's going to be our first things that we're going to get really big gains from mm. and it's not to say like everything isn't an or um like a lot of this narrative is this versus this okay you could take amino acids like you could take a bta or yeah yeah during training before you sleep and everything is good and it's not to say that's wrong but if you've only got so much money and time focus and attention in a day what should we be focusing on and most people are on budget constraints of some form sleep and is so, so cheap too well yeah well kind of sleep involves time and how well, expensive okay. is time um fair fair but what's how expensive not is your fucking is life you how expensive is outside well, exactly so <laughs> exactly and so if you don't sleep enough then you're actually taking time from later and so mm. sleep is one of those long run longevity things so 100%. um yeah work on those foundations it's not to say that you can't supplement before but know that you, you're getting way less leverage out of anything until your foundations are good. Mm. Um, and I think there's heaps of people shouting that right now, and it makes me really happy. Yeah. Um, there's way less in the supplementation world that I guess I spend time in, and I do tend to avoid the mainstream um, culture if I can. Um, but there's a lot of people out there talking nice specifics and that's awesome great that's rewarding um i think that does that that was a really good end wrap on the supplementation side i'm really happy with where we got there i'm really happy too there's two that i also want to talk about because i mean we we talked yeah. about the stuff that 
I see generally as what people are taking. There's two that we didn't talk about that I think, well, we didn't talk about at length. Um, and, you know, I think this is like the start of a conversation, right? And, um, you know, this might be as good a time as any to say that, you know, we, we talked before the podcast and we really want to hear from people listening like, what do you think? What what are you what are you seeing as issues? What problems are you trying to solve within your you know, grappling or fight sports in general that you're curious about how how supplementation of something might impact that? Um, I've had a couple of questions from people, but I don't have them on hand. But I think at some point we could really um, you know dive into some Q and A. So we really want to hear from what other people's questions are, so that we can. Um, dig into that a bit deeper. So we talked about um, a lot of the stuff within um, grappling sport that I see people are doing. Um, and we touched on a couple of other bits and pieces. Um, but there's two that we haven't talked about at length um, that I do want to touch on, which are creatine and beta alanine, um, which I think, you know, obviously the, the long end of the lever is stuff like sleep, protein intake, gut health like that stuff is your foundation slightly further in on the lever length is stuff like creatine beta alanine and then right down the other end for me are things like tonkat ali um fedogia agrestis um yeah. bulbine natalensis is a new one that i've recently been introduced to um yep. but yeah creatine beta alanine i think are, are really um big for me um, and I feel like my training is night and day if I'm not versus am taking those two things. Um, do you want to talk about why? Like, I mean, my understanding of each of them, and I like this approach where I can go, here's my like bro science yeah. version of what I think is going on. And then you can kind of actually give the, the broader perspective. Like my understanding of creatine is actually relatively good. Like we looked at, um, at mm. ATP PCR, the phosphocreatine energy production system while it was studying. And so it's this idea that when you have like short nine second bursts of activity, um, you, your body starts to um, produce energy, produce ATP through different processes. Like there's different chains that the body can follow to get to this energy like the fuel that makes muscle fibers do their shit. And um, this particular um, energy system is more highly taxed during those short bursts of energy. And ATP, PCR, adenosine triphosphate, phosphocreatine or creatine phosphate, the creatine part of that is an essential part of that of fueling that pathway. So in a sport like grappling, where we are repeatedly taxing that energy production method in bursts of activity, maybe it's like going for a takedown, attempting a sweep, shooting in for a double leg, trying to frame somebody away from you. You've got these bursts of activity that you're then trying to recover from and then go again. And so um, having additional creatine in your body enables you to do that more effectively is that like does that fit reasonably well in yes. with your view we can we can do a really high level explanation point 
Um, so this energy system that you're talking about, the phosphocreatine energy system, it's just the concept of um, breaking bonds on molecules and utilizing that energy that you're getting from that. So we're, we're breaking creatine from phosphate. Right, um, okay. With that, uh, and much like we do with this other thing, so everyone hears about ATP, adenosine triphosphate, that's the common, that's what is doing most of the time. Well, that's like, that is the core of that system. And what the creatine is doing is it's kind of providing, it's an extra guy helping out with that. So to do an analogy, we could think of if you were doing, you're doing a speed eating competition and you're at this plate and you've got all this food here. If you want to eat as fast as you can, like you're going to finish what's on your plate right in your available area. Mm-hmm. And then you're going to have to go out and get another plate. That's kind of like with the ATP system, there's a, there's a limit to how much can be conveniently stored in your near area. But right. what the creatine does is it's like having another plate on side. And so right. as soon as you're done with that plate, you can just shuffle in the other one and it's preloaded and good to go. And then that frees up that other plate to then load up with some more energy. So what's happening is the phosphates are shuffling from the creatine to the ATPs sort of thing, like in the background. And that is, it's just like, it's another worker helping out to keep things going along smooth. So when you were doing those sudden bursts of activity, having someone else to facilitate getting in the more energy when mm-hmm. you're kind of limited on how much you can do right there at the time, sure. that's really valuable. So it helps keep things going. Um, I think one of the big things though, is that tons of research across all sorts of sports, including martial, martial arts, including jujitsu, and it looks really favorable in terms of performance, in terms of injury, in terms of uh, longevity, in terms of like recovery. So it, it's just, it's such a comprehensive because you're working at, on the body at such a, uh, on something that influences nearly everything. Right. And that's, Psychological that's benefits why as well, I right? also like, yeah, because brain health, again, your brain is doing those short bursts, energy things. Like your brain is using so much of your body's energy. It just mm. makes sense. So when you have a short burst energy, having something to help facilitate that along is just awesome. That's interesting. Um, so creatine is one that of any supplements, that's it's one of the first I'm ever going to introduce to someone because it is demonstrated to work so well across a wide population mm. about 20 to 30 percent of people are non-responders which is worth a note and that's becoming quite established interesting and so it is still pay attention if someone is receiving benefit mm. um but except that it's a more subtle and over time thing um and also there's not really there's no demonstrated downsides to date really in terms of creatine supplementation, if people are taking massive amounts, maybe a bit of gut distress, but mm-hmm. don't take massive amounts. It's not inherently the best anyway. That's an important thing that we should maybe like highlight as well. It's like I've heard 
people talk about this old outdated research that's since been debunked which talks about the impact of creatine on like the liver or the kidneys or something that there were these like papers that came out saying oh it's not good for something it's it's the kidneys and it comes up a bunch uh you could say as a simple case so a common way that we measure the health of the kidneys is the content of fluid that goes through it in a certain amount of time right but you can't directly measure that so well and so what they like to do is they measure uh, creatinine content which is a metabolite of creatine Mm -hmm. which in normal probably sedentary populations that they were studying at the time uh is kind of a stable measure if you're not doing Mm. a whole bunch you've got a steady breakdown so they could just kind of use that as a little flag but then what happens when you exercise a lot or when you take creatine that will cause spikes and ups and downs in that creatinine the creatinine is not inherently bad it's just a marker it's just like a little bit of paint that they're using gotcha and so what's happening is it's it's a red herring type fallacy of logic where they're seeing the market go up and they're like ah the kidney is under stress no actually it's just fine it's just that market you need to control like it's it's a in my opinion and i'd love to hear a countering opinion on this but in my opinion it's not a very relevant measure in hard exercising populations and certainly not in people taking creatine right um there is other sure they're more costly ways to measure your kidney and a more direct um way and you really like your bodybuilders that are very serious they're they're doing that not measuring creatinine levels because the variability on that if you have one hard training session instead of having a day off before wildly different results right but the kidney function might be just the same so Mm. that's where that came from these days and it can be not coming from my mouth but the international society of sport nutrition a what is viewed as very credible body the issn acknowledge that yeah they, yeah yeah like they they state that there's no like that creatinine issue is not a harmful thing and that there is no known harm on the kidney for people with normal healthy kidneys the Mm. caveat there is like hey if you do have kidney issues they are still a little bit like you should think about your creatinine intake and right now i probably i couldn't debate the point right Um, it's probably it's something to you need to think about it and look at it more there's arguments both ways i think interesting Um, so creatine kidney function yeah it's completely fine um creatine is is really good for you that's that's just the thing Um, sick uh the other was beta alanine beta alanine okay Um, so so my understanding of beta alanine is that it changes the way that hydrogen ions are processed in the musculature 
and that there's a relationship between, in fact, it used to be viewed from my understanding as like lactic acid buildup would be the thing that makes you feel sore in your muscles when you're doing like a lot of work. Right. And it's since been shown that it's actually the buildup of hydrogen ions within the musculature that cause that feeling, not lactic acid itself, but there's like a corollary relationship between those two things. So yeah. one was seen as a marker or an indicator of the other. Um, and beta alanine does something like bonds with something um, that shuttles hydrogen ions out or there's what there's something yeah, that happens we can, in there <laughs> we can jump in again and we'll start from a meaning high level that you can work harder for longer it's like my yes endurance activity is where beta alanine has is popular for that's why i like to, i like to mention if things are popular for there's emerging evidence that even short bursts that alanine has a really good role Right. But the historical trend in research and what it's been loved for in sports is longer streaks of activity. So mm -hmm. the creatine was the short burst thing and the beta alanine was the long thing. Gotcha. It's kind of the way um, that the, the big body of the evidence goes towards anyway. What we could say, so within your muscle, uh, there's like acidic and basic state, but basically it's like your muscle likes to operate in a certain range of just a normal environment so just like your the temperature of your house we could do as an example um you like your temperature of your house in a certain range if it goes outside that range it might make it harder to do certain things like um think or fall asleep just just whatever fall asleep um so your muscle is like that on a small level and that is actually both with temperature but also acidity Mm -hmm. and what happens when we use a lot of energy so it's a bit of a downstream of the energy use process um yeah you're creating a more acidic environment and this is what you're talking about a bit with these hydrogen ions and stuff so with that we're trying to essentially the goal for maintaining performance over the time is maintaining that environment in the ideal state. So providing a buffer against that increase in acidity. And that's where beta alanine really shines, not in itself, but actually beta alanine is the, it's, there's two molecules. One is an amino, another amino acid histidine, and that mm. binds with beta alanine to make carnosine. Carnosine that is the thing that helps deal with the acidity. The What we see is that the rate-limiting aspect of making carnosine to have a plentiful amount of carnosine available to buffer that acidity is the beta-alanine side. People generally seem to have enough histidine, and there's generally enough kind of enzymes and stuff ready to put it together, and people were generally low on beta alanine. So supplementing with beta alanine, we get a marked increase in carnosine. And that carnosine is then available kind of almost like the creatine. It's it's another extra helping hands around to deal with mm. this increase in acidic stress, you could say. And so 
it's it's providing more hands to to be able to do the things that you want and that's that's quite valuable it's a it's a bit indirect like you you're getting through a few steps and so again certain people will respond differently and we're going to get some variance there um i view it as and this might be a bias but it's probably it's not as first call to me as creatine is for everyone but if someone is doing endured like multiple minutes of kind of intense stress work on their muscle i think that's where it does start to really shine and i'll do an example there's a combat um the military quite likes to do a lot of supplementation studies i love it when they do uh they did multiple tests with bad alanine this is just one study this is a not the whole world but one study beta alanine really shined on this test where they were essentially carrying another person for i think a few minutes mm-hmm. um as they're like this person's wounded i'm running him off the battlefield type concept it was really good for that it improved like cognitive measures afterwards as well but also like their performance of being able to run and everything wow. at the time but there was negligible difference in this study population in this study for things like one kilometer, two kilometer sprints, or um, which I guess is kind of like a longer thing. It's not necessarily a sprint, but they're going mm. really fast. Um, and some of the more, like what we actually do conventionally know beta alanine for. So let's say it, th- there is some real specificity, but what I like about this is that to me, I'm like, okay, cogs working. This is an activity where someone's kind of under a lot of muscular load and they're doing endurance. It's not just about endurance Mm. uh, because if it's just endurance, it might be other things like VO2 capacity that are capping out before. So the ability to get oxygen in well, that might be the rate limiting thing on running before anyone gets close to overdoing the acidity of their muscles or more commonly in many sports it's actually temperature comes before acidity so managing the temperature of your muscles well is Mm. massive like that's like sleep sort of thing compared to acidity but if you manage the temperature then acidity is going to be the next thing that's so it's not to say again like i like to remind it's not an or approach it's an and it's good to do both but if if you could only do one or if you could only spend 70 percent or 80 percent of your time on one my first call would be temperature um for basically every sport interesting Uh, and funnily enough there's some supplemental things but for the most part there's there's better stuff like training yourself to deal with those temperatures and stuff like that um training in high heat i don't get to make money off that yeah yeah it is yeah and training your sweat response is um is a big one for that what about things like blood flow? so would that have an impact on temperature regulation of blood flows or less so i i would expect less so uh it's it's a factor obviously because mm. you're distributing the temperature throughout your body when you do that but i don't believe it's a common rate limiting okay. thing i haven't deliberately looked at that um mm. specific interaction very sure. well um, I'm just trying to think how you could make money ultimately off that. <laughs> people's people's ability to sweat 
Mm. Um, oh, you could definitely do, you could introduce something that increases blood flow and see how well people's individual tissues, their temperature is managed appropriately, and then how well performance goes. Like, you could definitely work out like a correlatory study on that. Mm. Um, but people's ability to sweat seems to be the biggest one because you sweat and then when the sweat is evaporated off your skin that's a release of temperature right um, i sweat a lot so i mean i feel like that's probably an indicator I, that i have good heat regulation or temperature regulation yeah. in my musculature so i would feel more of a performance improvement from something like beta alanine because i'm not like worried about yeah. something like sweat like i'm sweating yeah. as soon as i step on that's <laughs> like my body's yeah. gone yeah and that's awesome uh, as in like that, uh, I think... Not so much for my training time, partners. Like, little beads of yeah, sweat going into sucks. their face. <laughs> this is now when it comes into the competitive thing of sucks for you, but now Pete's getting a leg up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, maybe not making you a better coach, but... Uh, <laughs> or, yeah, or more popular in the gym, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, other, other yeah. meaningless things. Yeah. Um, but uh, <laughs> like I think friendship. when we talk... Friendship... Uh, community <laughs> anyway. uh, after spending an hour talking on the value of friendship and community yeah i know, I know. Um, it's ironic i'm no stranger than that <laughs> uh so back to the beta alanine it's important um it might not be the first call but i think early on we actually established that you're a really good sweater mm. and frankly it's things that you can work on at the same time mm. i think in a few like in a decade every high level performance sport sort of coach etc is going to be actively thinking about how they can train the athlete's sweat response to get mm. the most sweat out of that person that's really because it is a trainable thing yeah and it's a kind of easily trainable thing there's definitely the standard like you've got your genetic base and you've got to work off that but um but with a lot of things like high heat exposure and continuous heat exposure and stuff like that, then people, they do sweat more. Sauna? Um, super cool. Yeah, sauna. Um, and just, just training in high heat situations. So you think grappling in a sauna? Sauna is one that is they like control quite well. Good idea. Yeah, it's it's like the, um, not to bring up the Joe Rogan, but he's always gone on about hot yoga. Like it'd be it'd be like hot yoga to an extreme if you're grappling in the in the heat. Man, Maybe I've done hot yoga. I used to have a daily practice like... of hot yoga. Um that was one of the little side tangents that I went on in my physical journey. Mm. And um I I loved Bikram yoga, hot yoga. I I really enjoyed it. Um but I remember the first class that I went to as a mate was like, Oh yeah, come along, just bring in clothes that you wear for sport and um yeah, just check it out it's a koha class don't worry about it and i was check like okay sweet ass. so here's me thinking like well what clothes do i wear for sport and i was like well i, I trained jujitsu i hadn't really done a lot of many other things but i'd done a bit of yoga and i was like oh loose fitting pants are usually like good for yoga so I'd, I'd wear that if i was doing yoga at home so i put on like these like basically gi pants that i wore that i would wear for like stretching and stuff like that i was like yeah. it's probably about right that and like a t-shirt I came along and like get into this 40 degree room <laughs> and the, the workout starts and I'm like, Oh, this is quite, 
this is quite hot. <laughs> By the end of the session, I'm like trying to roll my pants up, which are drenched in sweat, like I've just jumped into a pool. I've taken my shirt off just to try and aerate a little bit. <laughs> Nobody really warned me quite how hot hot yoga was. I should have known. It's in the name, but um, it's, yeah. it's in the name. It is hot yoga, but um, yeah, yeah. You'd yeah, argue I should have figured that out. Yeah, maybe, um, but we'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I appreciate um, I think, so, circling around to the, the beta-alanine, it's much like creatine where there's been a lot of research, it's not nearly as much, but it's a mm. lot compared to many other supplements. It's fairly cheap, much like creatine. Side effect profile, negligible. There's the paresthesia the tingling of the skin if you really dislike that then you can spread your dosing out you consider this mm. like a loading so you just want to consistently take it um think of it like protein um you can spread your dosing out into lower doses over the period of the day mm -hmm. to end up getting the same amount in your body and then you won't get that tingling all the time and a cool thing to note is that when you stop getting the tingling it is maybe a correlatory marker that you're actually reaching saturation. So there seems to be an association between the tingling and how much, how saturated you are. So when people mm. get to that point where they're like, I don't even feel a beta alanine anymore, I'm hard as. Like, it's like, no, you're, you're not just really taking hard, a little beta alanine. Man. Beta -alanine well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and to be honest, I'm like, oh, cool. You're actually kind of reaching this saturation point of beta alanine. Right. And that's cool. I no. definitely notice, like, there are some times where I feel much more of that, and there are times where I don't feel it at all. And, like, if I don't feel it when I'm, like, because I know there's different forms of beta alanine or, di or different brands that I've used yeah. um, over the time that we've been working together. Um, capsule, powder, a couple of different brands, different combinations. There are some where I felt. I I never felt that. What do you call it? Paresthesia. Yeah, I believe that is the term. It's the. I've never heard the, the word before. Of, that's the tingling. Yeah, yeah. The beta alanine yeah. tingles. There were, you know, one or two where I I, ne I never felt that, and there were others where it was, you know, when I have felt it, it's been consistently the same level. And we had a conversation whether, um, and you assured me that it's not likely to be a relationship between that and whether it's actually being effective at all. Um, but point being, I have noticed times where I like feel it on one day and then I might have like a couple of days where I'm not training once in a blue moon. If I take it in the morning after I've had my training session and I don't feel it, and then I don't have any training to do over the next couple of days. I might just leave it for a couple of days because if I'm saturated, you know, I'll just hold that until I go into the next like heavy training session where it's actually going to be used and then take it again. Do you think that that's a useful way of looking at it or should I more just take it every day and publish and be damned? I, well, we could look at this from multiple points. Your logic seems strong. Um, in terms of how, the, how it works mechanistically. However, there is the 
kind of body of research argument where the body of research comes from consistent daily supplementation. And we don't really have much research on people just taking it when they're training. So as soon as I start to say like, oh yeah, you could just take it when you're training. Now we're moving into a speculation based off some good mechanistic thinking, but we're not sure. Whilst we can be sure reasonably of the outcomes that come from consistent daily training or not. Mm, Um, One thing is fairly certain though is that much like creatine if you train more and you're going to use more and therefore dosing higher would make sense um same with if you hold more muscle tissue um then you're going to have more to to hold to Mm. to like to reach that same concentration because you've got more buckets to fill up um yeah we could speculate a little bit and it would be chatting around a bit, but uh, blood flow could be a factor or absorption rate. So rate of absorption mm. into tissues might be a factor in there. And so it could just be circulation differences or other things like that. Um, really, we just, I, I don't know at this point. Someone right. might know. Interesting. Um, but I don't believe there's a common widespread knowledge. That's useful. Why sometimes it hits way more than others. Yeah. Sometimes um, better hourly. I think circulation would be a factor. Yeah. I think I notice it a lot more when I take it with the pre than without. And the mm. pre often has caffeine right. and uh, circulation things with it. So, that makes sense. Yeah. People can read into what they like, I think, there. Um, that probably covers bad alanine. And yeah. I'm starting to be slightly conscious of people's time. Um, was there anything else? I got all the time in the world for you, Thomas. My, my time is yours, Stolas. Yeah. <laughs> but no, no, I, th- I think we my have. Time is yours. We've <laughs> covered a lot. I think we've covered Very a lot. Romantic. Um, but yeah, maybe I, I don't know whether I um, actually mentioned it before, but like this is as good as a, a time as any to um, maybe just highlight the fact that, you know, we talked before the podcast. And we're really keen to take questions. You know, we we have the questions that we have and the ideas that we have. Um, and, you know, I have my view of like what I see in combat sports and grappling in particular. Um, you know, we didn't really dive too much down the um, stress, sleep aids, um, bits and pieces like that at the finer end of the spectrum that people might be playing with and might have questions about. So I guess um, if people have questions about supplements, they can, you know, feel free to hit me up at gentle arts NZ on um, Instagram or yourself at strom underscore down under. Yes. Yeah. It is strom underscore down under, um, or you can find my personal, personal account, which is a little bit, it's a better way to get direct to me for mm-hmm. less just like, hey, is this thing in stock? And more, um, can you explain to me this? That yeah. sort of questioning. Um, so there's those and let's have another yeah. chat at some point, I reckon. Yeah, and I, I think there's there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that we could tackle on the stress and other things. Oh, yeah. But basically, um, lifestyle practices are the main ones. That's what we could do as yeah. the teaser just do what you can to support your sleep and there's things like 
community getting outside doing physical stuff and that will that will help with stress and so bjj mm. probably helps with stress really good sweet that's why everyone's happy and why it becomes a cult uh even though you said it was a cult that's what a cultist would say <laughs> yes, yeah. BJJ is the answer. that's what a person in a cult would say <laughs> if yeah. jujitsu was a cult if it was a cult and i think yeah. on this beautiful note we will end here jujitsu may or may not be a cult enjoy your evening folks or your day or whatever enjoy your lives any last comments Pete? yeah no enjoy life um thank you for having me on the podcast bro like i I always really enjoy talking to you it's cool that we've we've got one of our conversations actually recorded now because you know we've had so many good yarns about so many things like i think it's i'm excited to share this stuff with people i'm excited to keep that conversation going um really appreciative of of my relationship with you with sean with strom um as a team really happy to fly the flag and appreciate all you guys do to support uh to support me and in, in, in the little the weird little pajama cuddling dream that i'm yes. chasing so avidly so thank you bro that's cool do you want to run off um just where people can find you what you're up to at the moment like just sure. any key things coming up um so instagram is like probably where people have the best luck at contacting me um at gentle arts nz um i've also built a website which is third monkey jujitsu.com um there's the story as to why third monkey is on the website um and that's where I kind of, if people are curious about having me in for a seminar, but maybe want to like know a little bit more, I've got a testimonials page where I've started collecting people's stories of their experiences of having me in there in their fuddy and, and doing some teaching just so people don't feel like they're going in so cold. So if people want to hear what other people have to say about what I do as an assurance thing to maybe have me come and teach a seminar, then, then that's a great way to do it. Um, but in terms of contacting me, I'd, I'd say Instagram is the best bet. Um, if you are keen to have me for a seminar, like definitely hit me up. I'll be on the road for um, in the North Island for chunks of the end of September um, through October, um, leading up to um, Big Super Fight in Derry, Ireland at the Millennium Center through Chaos Grappling. I'm kind of trying to fundraise a little bit. Um, a lot. I don't know if people see me or <laughs> to not, get my, my screen uh, over there. So um, any help is wildly appreciated. Oh, your screen's frozen. But <laughs> well, uh, so I guess uh, it's just us. <laughs> audience this is the end of the podcast if you guys are hanging around expecting more content there's not gonna be any (laughs) it's just me